Well, we continue our study in the Gospel of Luke this morning, turning to Luke chapter 17. If you would take your Bibles and turn there with me, we'll be looking at the first ten verses of Luke chapter 17. He said to his disciples, It is inevitable that stumbling blocks come, but woe to him through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck, and if he were thrown into the sea, than that he would cause one of these little ones to stumble. Be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times a day and returns to you seven times, saying, I repent, forgive him. The apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a mustard seed, you would say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and be planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Which of you, having a slave, plowing, or tending sheep, will say to him when he has come in from the field, Come immediately and sit down to eat? But will he not say to him, Prepare something for me to eat, and properly clothe yourself, and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterward you may eat and drink? He does not thank the slave because he did the things which were commanded, does he? So you too... When you do all the things which are commanded you, say, we are unworthy slaves. We have done only that which we ought to have done. There are a number of important and basic questions in life. Where did I come from? Why am I here? Where am I going? What happens when I die? When a person seriously addresses those kinds of questions in their lives, they will be drawn to the message of Christianity because it alone gives adequate answers to those questions. It's good to ask yourself questions like this. We need to ask things like, why do I feel the way I do? What is it that I really want? What do I really believe? Am I telling myself the truth? Do I really need this? In our passage this morning, Jesus continues to address his disciples. And in doing so, he addresses a series of issues which can turn into what we might refer to as diagnostic questions. They're questions which can help us to evaluate the state of our lives and our hearts, and in particular, our state as disciples of Jesus Christ. That's what we call ourselves, after all, right? If we believe in Jesus, we've placed our faith in him, we've turned from our sin, we believe the gospel... 
We profess to be disciples of Jesus. How are we doing in that regard? This passage provides for us a way of determining just how we're doing and perhaps what we need to work on. So we're going to hear Jesus exhort his disciples to do four different things. And as we do, we'll ask ourselves four diagnostic questions, which I trust will help us to examine ourselves in regard to the health and the strength of our own discipleship. So here's the first diagnostic question. What kind of influence am I having on others? Jesus said to his disciples, It is inevitable that stumbling blocks come, but woe to him through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea than that he would cause one of these little ones to stumble. Be on your guard. It doesn't matter how knowledgeable or strong you are, there will be temptations that come into your life that invite you and urge you to sin, to disobey that which you know to be true according to the word of God. Satan and all of his army are a crafty bunch. They send temptations our way that are most likely to trip us up. What may be a temptation for you may not be a temptation for me, and vice versa. Consequently, we need to keep some things in mind. We are never as strong as we think we are. When we say, I can handle it, we've already taken a step to demonstrate that we cannot. Satan is much more resourceful than we may think he is. And so Jesus says, be on your guard. Another thing to remember in this regard is that our only hope in the time of testing is to hold fast to Christ and to his word. He is our resource. He is our strength. But Jesus points to a related danger here. Woe to him through whom a stumbling block comes. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea than that he would cause one of these little ones to stumble. These are very strong words Jesus uses here. He says it would be better to be thrown into the sea wearing cement shoes than to face the judgment that will come from leading someone astray. And that leads us to this first diagnostic question. Am I in this position? Am I doing anything that would lead someone astray? We can do this in a number of ways. We can do it through false teaching. When we deny the goodness of Jesus, when we diminish the authority of Scripture, when we water down God's definition of sin, we are guilty of false teaching. When we twist the truth to suit our preferences... We are leading others astray. 
When we try to blend into our faith the beliefs of different religions, we are changing the truth of God into a lie. We set a stumbling block before people through false teaching. But we also set a stumbling block before people by false living, by living in a way that leads others astray. When people see another Christian who gossips, who gets drunk, who is unfaithful in their marriage, who is lazy in their job, who manipulates the system, who indulges in pornography, they tend to conclude that what that one professes is not true. We lead people to conclude that the Bible is pointless. Because even those of us who profess it don't really believe what it says. At least that's what our lives communicate. We've pointed out that this is magnified most clearly in our own households. When our children hear us say we are followers of Christ, then see that we consider many other things as more important than Christ, we're giving a mixed message. They learn from us. Another way we lead people astray is when we seek to justify sin, when we tell people that what is wrong is right, we lead them astray. When we respond to someone else's sin by telling them it's not really that big a deal, God understands, we lead them astray. God does not understand sin. God sent his son to pay the penalty for sin. He understands that our disobedience is rebellion against him. That's what he understands. And when we make light of sin, what we're communicating is that the gospel isn't really necessary. We can also lead people astray by our silence. When we have the opportunity to point people in the right direction and do nothing, we are accessories to their destruction. We are the watchman on the wall who does not warn of coming catastrophe. The builder who knows that there is a structural problem with something that he is building but does nothing to fix that problem is liable. A Christian who sees someone heading to destruction but says nothing will give an account for that silence. You're putting a stumbling block before that one. So our first diagnostic question is, what kind of influence am I having upon others? Our second diagnostic question is this. Am I growing in my capacity to forgive? Pick up in verse 3. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. 
And if he sins against you seven times a day and returns to you seven times, saying, I repent, forgive him. Now we'll deal with verse 5 under the next question, but I do want you to see the connection here. When Jesus tells his disciples, listen, you need to forgive, essentially, as often as someone comes to you looking for forgiveness, the disciples understand what he's saying. And what's their response? Lord, if we're going to do that, you better increase our faith. Because they know that's not an easy thing to do. Now, there are two parts to this command. First, we are to rebuke someone if they sin. If your brother sins, verse 3, rebuke him. The point here is that we need to take responsibility for one another. We guard one another's souls. If we see someone doing something wrong, we need to deal with that. Not because we are being self-righteous, not because we are being judgmental, but because we are to love one another. And sin kills. Sin destroys. And so when we see someone trapped in the bondage of sin, we are not as we mentioned a moment ago, to remain silent. We are to come alongside them and seek to lead them out of that sin. If someone hurts us, we need to let them know that they've done so. It's one of the great things about what Scripture teaches in regard to forgiveness. If someone has offended me, I am responsible for going to them and letting them know and healing that relationship. If I realize that I have offended someone else, the responsibility still rests upon me to go and to seek forgiveness for that offense. The responsibility for broken relationships is always on me. It's also always on you. And so ideally, as I'm going to you to make things right, you're coming to me to make things right. And we meet in the middle. And we heal that relationship. But we do that Personally, instead of telling everyone else how horrible this person is, we go to that person, we let them know about the offense, and we seek to bring reconciliation. The truth is, many times we can see someone heading for trouble before they see it themselves. And so we come in gentleness, desiring the best for one another. Say, I don't know if you, 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 you've seen this happening And maybe I'm not seeing it properly, but I wanted to talk to you about that. So if there is an issue, it doesn't continue on. It doesn't get out of control. That's one of the ways we love each other. But this, of course, implies that we are open to correction ourselves. That's a lot more difficult. 
Most of us are okay pointing out the problems with others. <laughs> we aren't too happy when people come to us and point out our sin. But we need to keep our eye on the goal. Holiness in life and in teaching. Healthy, loving, committed relationships one to another. Of course, when it comes to dealing with someone else's sin or accepting correction for our own sin, the manner in which we give or receive is key. No one responds very well to a person who gets up in your face and is abusive about it. We don't want to hear from someone who seems to be rejoicing that they've caught us. We need those who love us, those who are concerned about us. The person who lovingly says, can I talk to you privately about something, is a person that we should cherish. Those who dare to rebuke must approach that conversation with certain things in mind. You may not have all the information. You may have misread the situation. You must always come humbly with the word of God rather than with your own opinions or preferences. If I I need to come to someone to talk to them about what may be an issue, I'm going in hope that I'm mistaken. That's what I hope is going to happen. I'm going to hope I've misinterpreted something or there's something I don't understand. And so if that's my hope, then that's going to affect how I approach this. And once we've confronted someone with their sin, we are to forgive the one who responds properly and says, You know what? You're right. And I repent. When someone faces up to the wrong they have done and asks for our forgiveness, we are to grant that forgiveness. And I think this is an important point. The person must acknowledge their offense in order for true forgiveness to take place. We all know this is easier to proclaim than it is to do. Forgiveness means absorbing the hurt that has been caused And letting it go. Not seeking to inflict the same hurt that I've experienced. But absorbing that, saying, okay, I was hurt, but you've repented. You've recognized what's gone on, and and now I forgive you. And I'm not looking for payback. I am happy that our relationship has been restored. It means we don't hold that issue against someone. We don't bring it up again and again and again. We move on as if it never happened, because that's the way God forgives us. If you are in Christ, your sin has been thrown as far as the east is from the west. It is forgotten. That's how God calls upon us to relate to one another. When we truly forgive, we act most like Jesus. But this is not easy. 
And sometimes it takes a good deal of time. Sometimes we have to remind ourselves over and over again that we have to forgive something. We may have to do this for months or years before we actually forget and let it go. What if we don't forgive? Then what? If we don't forgive, we become bitter. We become filled with resentment. We begin to develop a very sour outlook on life. When we do forgive, we act most like Jesus. When we refuse to forgive, we act most like the enemy, like the devil. When we forgive, we show that we understand and appreciate what we have been forgiven. When we refuse to forgive, we show that we ourselves are trapped in the bondage of self-righteousness. Forgiveness not only sets the offender free, it sets us free as well. It is true, isn't it, that forgiveness is closely connected to repentance. After all, verse 3 says very clearly, if he repents, forgive him. And I think what Jesus is talking about there is the fact that we can and should always have a heart of repentance, always be of forgiveness, rather, always being willing to forgive. But that forgiveness cannot come to its full fruition Unless there is repentance. If someone is not willing to repent, they cannot accept forgiveness. And so forgiveness, you know, the the circuit never gets completed. But that doesn't mean we aren't willing. It doesn't matter we don't desire forgiveness. Throughout Jesus' teaching on church discipline, in in Matthew 18, throughout every step of the process, Jesus says, if he listens to you, and that's Jesus' way of saying there in that context, if he repents, if he listens to you, if he understands his sin, if if he admits to it, if he turns from it, then the process stops. You've won your brother, Jesus says. That relationship is restored. That one is forgiven. This is also the way in which God forgives. In 2 Chronicles 7.14, a verse which has been so terribly misused, the Lord says to Israel, And my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Then I will hear from heaven, will forgive their sin, and will heal their land. Let me take a bit of a detour here, just for a moment. As I said, this is a terribly misused verse. And we need to understand what's really going on here and what's not going on here in order to understand repentance. I wish I had time to fully address this, but very quickly, you know someone is misusing this text when they apply it to the United States. And this has been taking place since I was a teenager. I remember Jerry Falwell and the Moral Majority, and this was like their theme verse. If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their, their land. 
The promise of forgiveness and healing was given to Old Covenant Israel, which is the only nation which has ever been described by God as my people who are called by my name. The United States is not God's nation any more than any other nation on the face of the earth, including modern-day Israel. The church is that which is comprised of God's people. In chapter 2, verse 9 of his first epistle, Peter says that the church is God's holy nation. And so the application of 2 Corinthians 7.14 is not in regard to any secular nation. The application of that great verse is now for the church, Christ's church, with whom judgment begins, we're told, is to humble itself and pray and seek God's face and turn from its wicked way, and then God will hear from heaven and forgive her sin. Will he heal our land? Brothers and sisters, the church has no land. And that's really the point. We have no land to heal. We are strangers and aliens. We have been promised a land, but we don't get that land until Jesus returns at the culmination of all things and transforms this fallen earth into the new heavens and the new earth. So don't get caught up in the political rhetoric which seeks to portray the United States as God's special nation. We are not. As a nation, we deserve every ounce of judgment God sees fit to pour out upon us. Since 1973, this nation has sacrificed 63 million babies to Moloch. In my own lifetime, we have rarely experienced a time in which we have not been engaged in some kind of military conflict somewhere in the world. We are all too often led by unrighteous rulers and unjust judges. That which God has called an abomination has now been enshrined in American law. And even the so-called conservative party has gone along with all of it. Brothers and sisters, this is not politics I'm preaching, it's Bible. How can one look at this nation and call it God's people who are called by God's name? That's beyond me. To do so not only defies reality, it is to misuse and misapply the word of God. Focus once more again on how God forgives. What must Israel do in order to gain the forgiveness of God. They must seek God's face and turn from their wicked ways. Brothers and sisters, you will find no more, no better, I should say, definition of repentance anywhere inside or outside of Scripture. Seeking God's face and turning from your wicked ways, that is repentance. And the fullness of forgiveness is dependent upon repentance. What does John say in 1 John 1, 9? If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we confess our sin, what precedes forgiveness Confession, repentance. 
But we need to be careful here as well. Because, newsflash, we're not God. Therefore, it is not our job to determine whether or not a person has repented enough. That's God's responsibility. Now, we certainly need to be wise. There are certainly times we need to be cautious. We need to take a person's weakness into account. You don't put a thief back in charge of the money. Wisdom recognizes the possibility that genuine repentance exists alongside of genuine weakness. Forgiveness is to be given, but wisdom is to be used afterward. If you are the offender, your responsibility is to repent. That means that you must recognize what you have done. You must confess to the offended party the hurt that you have caused. You must truly desire to go in a different direction. We may fall again and again and again. But if so, we repent again and again and again. As humiliating as that may be. And if you are the offended party, your responsibility is to forgive and not to allow resentment and bitterness to take root within your heart. So the first two diagnostic questions that Jesus wants us to ask are, what kind of influence am I having on others and am I growing in my capacity to forgive? Our third diagnostic question is this. Am I growing in my ability to trust God? Verse 5 and 6 say this, The the apostles said to the Lord, Increase our faith. And the Lord said, If you had faith like a mustard seed, you would say to this mulberry tree, Be uprooted and be planted in the sea, and it would obey you. The apostles recognized that Jesus was asking them to do something that was extremely difficult. If they were going to forgive, like Jesus has just described forgiveness, they knew that that must be done with some kind of supernatural power. And so they asked the Lord to increase their faith. Jesus says, you don't need a lot of faith. You don't need a lot of faith to obey God in this way or to be used by God or to see God work in great ways. Faith at its its core is very simple. It is trusting God. That's what faith is. You think of of how a a, a skydiver puts his faith in a a parachute. Jumps out of a plane, trusts that his chute will open, And enable him to float to the ground. The Lord is far more reliable than any parachute. I personally would never put my faith in a piece of cloth. But I will put my faith in the Lord. Because he is trustworthy. He is faithful. What we need to understand is that Jesus isn't talking about the faith to do cheap magician's tricks. 
It's not that we should be trying to move mountains. The idea is that if we trust God, we would see mountains moved if that is what needed to happen. We see this again and again in Scripture. Paul tells us that God will do exceeding abundantly beyond all that we ask or think. Most of us tend to live safe lives. We want to control the outcome of circumstances. We don't like to have to put our full confidence in what God alone can do. And this is a problem. We will never know the power of God in our lives until we dare to trust in him. And stop trying to take control of our own lives. The Bible does not promise that you have, if you have enough faith, every situation will work out the way you want it. Or that you will get everything you desire. If we have faith, we will have the confidence that God knows what he's doing. So even if my life does not go the way I would like it to go, I know it's going the right way. Because my God is a sovereign God who loves me and works everything out for good. I don't know what you're facing in your life. I know many of you are facing great difficulties. Maybe a physical need, a financial need, a friend who is resistant to the gospel, a ministry that doesn't seem to be going anywhere, a challenge you don't feel that you can meet. We've got to remind ourselves to trust. He can meet the need when we can't see how it can be met. We put our confidence in his ability rather than our own. Once we do this, you may be surprised at what God will do. It takes faith to trust God's character and wisdom even in trials. It takes faith to trust God to give you the right words when you're put on the spot about your faith or to keep you quiet when that's what's needed. It takes faith to trust God to supply the needs that we have. It takes faith to stand before the freshly dug grave of someone that we love. It takes faith to wait for God To bring that special person into your life. It takes faith to confront addictive or deep-seated behaviors rather than simply throwing up your hands and saying, it's just the way I am. It takes faith to be willing to serve God in an area that is outside your comfort zone. Faith is nothing more than active trust. Jesus reminds us that our job is to walk by faith and not by sight. We are to trust God's word. We are to trust his proven character, even when that mountain before us seems overwhelming. Well, there's one more diagnostic question we need to ask, and that is this. What is my motivation for serving God? Verse verse 7 says, Which of you, having a slave plowing or tending sheep, will say to him when he has come in from the field, Come immediately and sit down to eat? But will he not say to him, Prepare something for me to eat and properly clothe yourself and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterward you may eat and drink? 
For he does not thank the slave because he did things which, we, which were commanded, does he? So you too, when you do all the things which are commanded, you say, we are unworthy slaves and we have done only that which we ought to have done. You've probably met people who say they are your friend but won't do anything for you unless they get something in return. Maybe money, maybe a favor. Those aren't friends, those are business associates. The problem is that too often I find myself relating to God in that way. Lord, I was nice to so-and-so today. And you know how hard that is. So now I hope you'll reward me for my good deed. As if I'm a Boy Scout. Or we might say, Lord, I, I gave when I went to church this morning. And now you need to bless me in return. That's what some guy on TV said you were going to do. And we have this attitude. We would never say it out loud, because we know how it sounds, but the attitude is, Lord, you owe me. I hope there's nobody here like that this morning. There are some people who think about church that way. I'm going to go and I'm going to sit in a pew for an hour and a half. Because that's what God tells me I should do. And if I do that, then God is going to own me. I hope it's not that much of a hardship to be here. I hope it's, you know, not your version of suffering. Thinking that God owes you for being here. But some people think that way. Some people don't have the spirit of God. God never owes us, brothers and sisters. He never owes us. And we must not serve God for the blessing that we hope to receive. We serve God because He is worthy. He is worthy of our service. And the best that we can give to Him is not nearly what He deserves. When we have done the best that we can possibly do out of the purest motives that we can possibly develop within our hearts, we are even then unworthy slaves. We have done only that which we ought to have done. Job lost everything. He lost his business, he lost his children, he lost his health. His response was what? The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. The apostles rejoiced when they were counted worthy to suffer for the name of Christ. That's not what most of us signed up for. Many of us probably came to an understanding of the gospel... And perhaps when that gospel was proclaimed to us, there was something added to it. 
Come and believe Jesus. Why? Well, because Jesus is going to make things better. All those problems you've got in your life, Jesus is going to take care of all that. Jesus is going to make your life easier. That's not the gospel. We don't come to Jesus because of the blessings that he will bestow upon us. We come to Jesus because he is God. And we are accountable to him. And we have sinned against him. And we have come to understand that yes, this God whom we have rebelled against will bless us. But we come because we recognize who we are. And we recognize who he is. And that's first and foremost. The blessing that we desire when we come to put our faith in Christ is the blessing of forgiveness. Not the blessing of a better bank account. Of no problems. Of a fixed relationship. Are we willing to give him our best because he deserves our best? Or will we give our best only if we think it will cause him to do for us what we want him to do? One is an act of faith. The other is an act of negotiation. It is a serious mistake to try to keep score with God. Because we will always lose. Always. You cannot out give God. So this morning we've drawn attention to four questions that can help us understand how we're doing as disciples. What kind of influence are we having on others? Are we growing in our capacity to forgive? Are we growing in our capacity to trust God? What is our motivation for serving God. And I suppose I should mention one more thing before we bring this message to a close this morning, and that is this. Merely knowing the questions isn't going to help us. When you go to the doctor and you receive a diagnosis, you then have a choice to make. You can do what the doctor tells you and take the medication that's prescribed and change your diet and so forth, or you can ignore his advice. When it comes to what Jesus is telling us in our passage this morning, we need to not only ask these diagnostic questions of ourselves, but we then need to go on from there and make the necessary changes. If we do that, we will then become better disciples of our Lord Jesus Christ, and we will honor our King. And if we are truly his disciples, isn't that our desire? Don't we want to honor our Lord? Live for his glory? May God make it so. Father, do it. Do it. Father, search our hearts and show us those areas of our lives that need to be changed so that we might become more faithful disciples of Jesus Christ. And in doing so, Father, we will be sure to give you the glory. For it's in Christ's name we ask it. Amen.